Good morning. Well, I did a little bit of research this week, and according to the American Bar Association, there are over 1.32 million lawyers in America. That's 1,320,000 lawyers in America. Over that. And if you do the math, that works out to roughly one lawyer for every 250 people in the United States of America. And that number of lawyers and that percentage is greater than any other country in the world. Now, there's a lot we could say about that, about what may be good or bad about that, but let's try to be charitable. At the very best, what we can say is that it shows Americans value having someone to represent them. We value having somebody who stands up for us, who can defend us, who has our back, who supports our interest no matter what. It's what a lawyer is supposed to do for you. But today we're going to discover and read a passage of scripture that shows us that Jesus does those things for us as well, but he does it better than any lawyer that we could hire. Not that we could never use one, but in terms of how we relate to God, he does it better than anyone we could hire to represent us. Our passage today is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28, and it's going to reveal an amazing and really jaw-dropping reality of who Jesus is for us. We're going to see he's our eternal advocate, and he's a perfect sacrifice. He's what we need in order to be right with God. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 23. You could also use the blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. Or you can look up on the screen because the passage will be there. Once you're there, Hebrews 7, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Hebrews chapter 7, starting verse 23. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Our author starts by talking about Old Testament priests, and he says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26 tells us, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28 tells us, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Lord, we feel our need to have someone represent us, someone stand up for us, someone have our back and defend us. Thank you that you provide that ultimate answer in your son, Jesus Christ. As we read and look at your word today, may you reveal to us how he is our eternal advocate, the one who intercedes for us, the one who represents us. 
God, may we also see how he is a perfect sacrifice, that he paid what was necessary so that we could know you. May that knowledge lead us to trust him, to come to know him, to know him better, and to praise you for providing so great a salvation through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. It's a letter that's in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. And this particular letter is written by someone we don't know who they are, but he's writing to Jewish background believers, Hebrew people who used to practice Judaism, but now they're followers of Christ. And this author is writing to them because he's concerned. He's heard that some of them, even though they're Christians now, they want to go back to Judaism. And he says, no, Jesus is better. We're actually at a part of this book where the author's doing a kind of mini sermon on one particular Old Testament verse, a prophecy that we find in the book of Psalms that our author says is actually about Jesus. He's referring to Psalm 110 verse 4. And that passage says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking to the Messiah, to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And last week, we spent all our time talking about this really obscure Old Testament character named Melchizedek. And we saw he's a model for how Jesus is our king, our boss, our priest, our representative. And how Jesus' indestructible life, that he rose from the dead, that brought about a change that we needed in how we relate to God. And so the passage ended with verse 22, which told us that all that who Jesus is makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus guarantees a better covenant, a better agreement with God for us. And by saying that, our author's challenging probably some of the people he's writing to, their beliefs, and perhaps even some of their pride. Because everyone they knew was probably part of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And they're like, everyone I know, everyone I love is a part of this community. And you, Jesus, and you author who's writing, you're saying this Jesus provides something better, a better community than the one I've known all my life? It seems like there's just a few of us. And you're saying this is better than what I had when I was with all my friends and all my family? That's a really bold statement. They are right to ask, well, how? How is faith in Jesus better than my traditional Hebrew faith? How is it better than what I had before? And our author's going to tell him it's because of who Jesus is and what he does for us. And let's look at that. Who is Jesus? Well, in our passage, our author starts by saying he is an eternal advocate an eternal advocate. If you've got a copy of the, the notes, the sermon notes that should have come with your bulletin around in the lobby, that's your first blank there. He is our eternal advocate. And there's two ways we can look at this. The first is he is our eternal priest. So that's the first two blanks. He's our eternal advocate and he is our eternal priest. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again to see this. Verse 23 says, those former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's speaking to a reality. There were many, many 
priest in the Old Testament system. The reason was because they would die. Maybe there was an accident, a tragic accident happens and someone lost his life. Maybe someone got really mad at one of the priests and killed him. Maybe the priest just got sick, caught some infectious disease. Or maybe the priest just got really old and his body finally gave out. The point is, they keep dying and there needs to be a new one coming in. And our author's saying that that actually presents you with a problem though. Because if the person you are trusting to stand between you and God keeps dying, then is he really being effective in representing you to God? It doesn't leave much basis for security. I trust this guy. He's going to stand between God and me. Uh Uh-oh, he's dead. Well, I hope the next guy is just as good as that. Your relationship with God is always on edge. And our author says Jesus is better than that because Jesus isn't temporary. He continues to live. He is the one forever, eternal, unchangeable, permanent high priest. Jesus was born a human, but he's also the son of God. So he lives forever and he's able to represent us because he is one of us. One scholar, George Guthrie, put it this way, to draw near to an eternal God, we need an eternal priest. If God is eternal and lasts forever, then the person who gets us to him also needs to last forever. And as sure as the sun rises and as sure as the seasons change, Jesus is our high priest, our faithful representative before God. If we know him, if we have a relationship with him, then he will continue to be that for us until long after our sun burns out. He doesn't need to be elected and his term never expires. And he will not hand the job over to someone who may be less qualified. In our life, people come and go. Pastors of churches come and then go. Teachers, mentors that we may have in school, they come and then they leave our life. Who's ever in charge of the government, presidents come and go. Even someone who may be close to us, a, a parent, a relative, a family member, they're in our life for a season and then they're not. But he, he remains forever. But he's not just a distant priest off doing what he needs to to make us right with God. No, he's also personal. He relates to us. He is our faithful advocate. He's not just an eternal priest, but he knows us and is a faithful advocate for us. Faithful advocate. Look at verse 25 again. It says, consequently, he, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In many ways, this verse is unpacking something that we talked about last week. Back in verse 19, we read that in Jesus, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is talking about how we draw near to God. That's what Christ does for us. In him, we can approach God and come to him. In fact, the only way we can come to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's how we can approach God. We come through faith and trust in Jesus. We believe in him. We believe in who he is, that he is God's son. We believe that he lived a perfect life. We we sang a song earlier today about we believe about who he is and what he has done. We believe that he died for our sins and he rose to new life. 
We believe that and if we see that our sin, what we do against God, has separated us from him, pushed us away from God for all eternity. If we recognize I need, I desperately need a savior, I need someone to bring me to be right with God, then we can turn away from that sin and fully rely on him. That's what it means to draw near to God. Not a flip-flop back and forth. Today I'm going to draw near to God. Tomorrow maybe I won't. No, he's talking about a total surrender of how we can approach God and stay with him. It's only in Christ that we can draw near to God in the first place. And at the same time, it's only in Christ that we can continue to draw near to him now. As verse 25 says, he's able to save to the uttermost. He doesn't just stop with salvation, but he keeps going in how he represents us, advocates for us, and saves us to the uttermost completely once and forever. One scholar, Al Mohler, said, to the end of the horizon, another pastor, F.B. Meyer, said, there's no limit to his salvation, no barrier beyond which he may not pass. In Jesus Christ, our salvation is complete forever. It fully does its work. In this life, we grow to be closer to Jesus more and more. And when we enter eternity, he makes us perfect. In Christ, our salvation lasts forever, for all eternity. As long as as we can go, it lasts beyond that, to infinity and beyond. In Christ, we are completely saved, completely It's not that Jesus starts something. Jesus has done something, and now here's some steps for you to do so you can get to heaven. No, it's it's not that. It's not something we need to finish. It's not that there's something else missing. So Jesus did this, and let me tell you about this other thing you need. And if you have this, then you're good. No, if we know Jesus, if we have a relationship with him, then we are right before God. We do not need to look elsewhere. And yes, it's hard to, to... sometimes for us to wrap our heads around, but it's true. I can imagine the people receiving this letter are probably thinking about conversations they've had with their perhaps family members, Hebrew family members, some relatives or other acquaintances they have in the Jewish community who are like, are you saying that there's nothing for us to do? Surely there's something we can do to come near to God. Say, no, Jesus did it all. He alone saves and he will not fail to save us. He is always there for us. And so the question then is, what does that actually mean for us? What does that mean for us today? What is it that he's doing in how he advocates for us, how he represents us as a priest? Well, there's at least two implications of that. The first is that he, Jesus, he intercedes for us. What that means is that he is interceding for us. And there's lots of ways we can look at it, but one way we could view that is it means Jesus is praying for us. He prays for us. He brings our request before God. Jesus lived to die for us on earth, and now he lives to intercede for us in heaven. We see that here. We also see it in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans chapter 8, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised. He is now at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Our heavenly prince, Jesus Christ, can go before the throne of God on our behalf. 
Can you imagine that, that conversation he has? Lord, this is Joe's request. Lord, this is what Harry needs right now. Father, this is what would really help Janice. Lord, Danielle would really appreciate knowing this and, and having this wisdom for this situation. That is what he does for us. He goes before God on our behalf. And that gives us confidence that when we pray, our prayers will be answered. One Puritan writer, John Flavel, he put it this way about Jesus. He is ever begging new and fresh mercies for you in heaven. He will never cease till all your wants be supplied. Now, he wrote a long time ago, wants meant something different back then than it means now. When he says that, that doesn't mean we get everything we could possibly desire. No, it means that Jesus ensures that we get what we need. So even wants is something we need to survive. Jesus provides that for us. He knows what is best for us, and that's what he prays on our behalf. For example, he prays that we may res- be able to resist temptation to sin. And when temptations are there, we would resist and continue to follow him. He said that even when he was alive here on earth, he said to his disciple Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, of course, Peter did fail, but then Jesus also prays, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He prays for us that we would resist temptation. But I think most importantly, his goal is that we would know God and that we would grow in our knowledge of him. One pastor, Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way, we are saved because he died. But that salvation is brought home, is secured to us because he sits at the right hand of God and continually makes intercession for us. He's before God on our behalf and that's what brings us the rest of the way home. It reminded me of something another pastor said. John Piper talked about prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie on the front lines and we can radio to headquarters and say what we need for the fight ahead of us. Well, in Jesus, that's what we do. We can address God because he's there speaking to him on our behalf. We receive the supplies we need. The general, the king, the judge is God. Jesus is heavenly father. And through Jesus, he is always on our side. So Christ intercedes for us. But it would also be accurate to say that he represents us or perhaps he defends us. So he not only intercedes for us and prays, but he represents us. He defends us. He is our advocate with the Father. He is before God right now on our behalf if we know him and have a relationship with him. Because he had a perfect death on the, the cross, he lived a perfect life, and then he died, that means that God doesn't have to compromise. God needed to act against sin and rebellion, but instead he put that punishment on Jesus, and so justice has been served. Jesus paid the penalty for our past, our present, and our future sins. And what that means is when we fail now, when we mess up, when we make mistakes now, Jesus is able to defend us. He's able to say, I already paid for that, God. Yes, I know this person just sinned right now. I know Pastor John sinned again right there, but he is, I've already paid for that. As John writes in 1 John, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We shouldn't run after that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we sin, we have someone there saying, yes, I I know what they've done, God, but I paid 
for that. I took care of that. Now, when we sin, our sin should cause us to, to mourn, to repent, to turn away from it. We should feel grief that we've harmed our relationship with God, but it does not have to lead us to despair because we have that advocate, the one who will plead our case for us. Uh, Pastor Spurgeon gave an illustration from some of Jesus' words from Luke 23. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says, right now, you can picture Jesus in heaven saying, Father, forgive, insert your name. Father, forgive John. Father, forgive Christine. Father, forgive Diane. That's what he's doing for us there. And if we ponder that, that is a humbling, humbling thought. This Jesus, this great Jesus, the one who we, we sing about, he's doing that for me right now? But that is what he does. Oh, that, that makes him better than any lawyer that we could hire. The best that there is. That makes him wiser than the best human lawyer we could find. And he is infinitely more faithful and true. As a lawyer might represent us before a judge, he represents us before God in a greater way. And thinking about that really stuck with me this week. That's why I called the sermon, Jesus is better than your lawyer. That image I thought was really powerful. Part of that may be because uh, there was actually a season in my life where I considered going into law and becoming a lawyer. I thought about it for a period of time. In fact, my interest in it was so much my uh, parents agreed to sign me up for a week-long uh, law summer program where you learned what lawyers were, what they did, the, the kinds of things, what the job looked like. And I, I enjoyed my time there. I, I learned a lot about it. I found it was really interesting. I even got to spend a day with the district attorney uh, a few weeks after that to kind of see what that job was like. But ultimately, and obviously, I decided that that wasn't for me. I'm grateful for those who are able to do that profession with a clear conscience before God. But as I thought about it for myself, I thought, I don't think that's something I can do. And let me tell you why I thought I couldn't do it. The reason was because in that class, we were told that if you are a lawyer and you're hired by a client, then your job is to defend that client, no matter what they have done. Even if your client committed murder, if you are their lawyer, your job is to defend them, to support their interest. Even if, say, you're a prosecutor or you're working for a district attorney office, perhaps the government you're representing is making a wrong decision. Perhaps you're trying to convict someone who's actually innocent. And even if you know that, you still have to carry through with your job. People are sinners, and lawyers often have to defend sinners. They have to look out for their interests no matter what they did. And I didn't think that was something I could do, spend the rest of my life doing. I'm grateful to those who can, but I didn't think it was something I could do. But fortunately for all of us, Jesus is not like me. Jesus didn't have that compunction because if we know him, he does defend us. Despite everything we've done, he says, no, you know what? I'm still going to defend this person that I know, that I love, that I've chosen. He defends us even when we're broken, even when we're rebellious, even when we're when we start as enemies of God, he saves us and says, this is a person I'm going to defend. Now, of course, there are differences between lawyers here on earth and our relationship with Jesus. Uh, I mean, first of all, Jesus doesn't work for us like a lawyer would if we hired them. In fact, we belong to him. 
And another key difference is that a lawyer doesn't become as guilty as their client in order to defend them. If a lawyer is representing a thief, he's going to make sure that that thief is treated fairly by the court, but it doesn't mean that that lawyer is now guilty of robbery. And lawyers certainly don't experience the same punishment if their client is convicted or proven guilty. But that's how Jesus is different, because he not only represents us and defends us, but he actually took on our sin. He took the punishment. We were said to be guilty, and he said, I'll, I'll take that punishment. I'll serve that sentence. We read about this in the book of 2 Corinthians. It says about God, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus not only defends you, but he makes you right before God. He makes you righteous in God's sight. This is his action, his love for us. Friends, if you're listening today and you you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of God, why do you reject that? That is incredible news that despite what everything you've done, this person wants to represent you. Now, I know why you might not be interested in that. You might say, well, but Pastor John, I see that and that's great. That's wonderful that Jesus will defend me, but he may tell me I need to make changes in my life. He may tell me I need to give up some things I really like and enjoy. And yeah, yeah, not, not maybe, he probably, most definitely will. But if in exchange for that, you get that advocate, that support, that person who's always there for you, who will never leave you or forsake you just by giving up a few things that you like, I I think that's worth the trade. And I would think about that some more. I would take advantage of that because he is able to save us. And the reason he's able to save us is the second major point of our passage. He is a perfect sacrifice. He is a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is a fitting, appropriate priest and savior for us. He meets the need we have for a perfect representative. Let's look at verse 26 again. Verse 26 says, It is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There is no other way that we could be made right with God. Jesus is the hero that we need. And why? Because of his character, who he is. In this verse, we're looking at the fact, not that he's human and our advocate, but that he is like God. That's another difference between Jesus and a lawyer. So a lawyer is not exactly like you, and he's not exactly like your legal opponent. He just represents you. But Jesus is like us, and he is like God. He knows God intimately, and he, if we know him, he knows us as well. And so one of the ways that he is like God on our behalf is because he is holy, as our passage says. He reflects the unique and distinct character of God. This is something that everyone recognized when they saw Jesus. This is a person who is holy. There's something different about him. At one point early in his ministry, he's actually telling demons to leave someone. And the demons say to him, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he's holy. Our verse also says that Jesus is innocent, blameless, harmless, 
No sin could be pinned on him. It says he is unstained, pure, and undefiled. You could search his life for evidence of sin. You could seek and try to find it, but you wouldn't be able to. And that makes him separated from sinners. He's set apart from those who reject God. Now, Jesus cares for and loves sinners. He reached out to them. He showed love and grace to them, but he was never one of them. He was never a sinner in God's sight. And in other words, that makes him sinless and, the last phrase, exalted above the heavens. He's exalted in the heavens. What's so great about this book is it tells us something and then it reminds us of it as we go throughout. We actually saw this idea that Jesus was pure, holy, sinless earlier in the book. We saw it back in chapter 4 where we read that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is without sin. So we saw that, and because he died without sin, now he's exalted to the highest place of honor in heaven. He's at a higher place than anyone else has ever been. And we'll see this again actually next week. The very first verse of chapter 8 says, The point we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is the perfect person we have. He's a perfect sacrifice. He is now in heaven. And this perfect person, he's the one who's willing to represent us and care for us. Why would he do that? If he's perfect, there's nothing wrong with him. Why would he choose to love someone as messed up as I am, as messed up as you are? What would make him do that? It can't be because he sees something wonderful in us. It can't be he looks at you, he's like, ah, you're a pretty cool person. That's why I want you. No, no. It must solely be because of his grace and his mercy for us. And again, if, this, if we really, really think about this, if we think about that why, why did God choose to love me? If we really ponder that, that is a question that would humble and break us. If we took time every day to reflect on that, that would probably change how we go throughout the day. And that's a question that we may ask God, but we definitely won't have an answer this side of eternity and maybe not even understand fully in the next. It's really only something that we can respond to with grateful praise. This perfect person chose to save us. And how he does it, we see in verse 27. In this verse, the author contrasts Jesus from those Old Testament high priests. As he says, he, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. Because Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's pointing to a reality that the Old Testament priest had to offer sacrifices for their own sins in order to be able to represent the people before God. We can read about this in the book of Leviticus. This is way back in the Old Testament law. Moses is speaking for God and he speaks to Aaron, who's the very first high priest. And he tells him, Aaron, draw near to the altar. Offer your sin offering, your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and for the people. And then bring the offering of the people. Make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. 
And I thought it was interesting. It, it's, it's a different language. Our New Testament's Greek, Old Testament's Hebrew, but at least as it appears in English, they both have this phrase, draw near, that we've talked about as well. For them, for Hebrew people, for, for the Jewish faith as it worked then, the only way for them to draw near to God was for the priests to offer these sacrifices, to kill animals. Why? Well, because we are, we are sinful. We're fallen. We chase after our own interests and desires. And that rebellion in God's sight is defiling. It's polluting. God cannot be in its presence. He rightly acts to destroy sin. So we need something to die in our place. Sin is eternally offensive to God. It must be punished forever. And for the Old Testament priests, that meant they had to offer daily sacrifices. And just picture for a moment, imagine that you are an Old Testament priest. And every single day, you wake up in the morning, you go over to the altar, and you spend all day killing animals. Cutting the throat of sheep and goats, ripping heads off birds. You do that all day, every day, for your entire life. Now, to me, that sounds like a horrible way to live. Why on earth would they do that? Well, they did that because they wanted the people to draw near to God. And that was the only way the people could come to God, have a relationship with him. They cared about their people. They wanted them to go grow closer to God, to come to know him. And so that's why they did it. And author's saying, but let's look on the other side. Now we have Jesus. Jesus, the sinless, perfect sacrifice. He died not for, not for himself, not for his own sins, but just for others, for ours. Jesus said when he was alive here on earth, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And instead of daily repeated over and over again sacrifices, Christ died once for all. That's something we'll unpack a little bit more in the coming weeks. But for now, the point is that he died one time and that does not need to be repeated. He doesn't need to die again and again. He died once without sin. He is the perfect sacrifice. And that perfect is also important because when those Old Testament priests sacrificed those animals, the animals were supposed to be without spot, without blemish. When you look at them, you said, wow, that looks like a really good sheep. You, you weren't supposed to be able to see something that was wrong in it because it's supposed to represent we needed that perfect sacrifice. So Jesus didn't offer an animal. He offered his own perfect life. And that makes him able to save us. Soon we'll get to chapter 9, which says about Jesus that he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his own death. And the result of that is he has secured for us an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation. He gave his own flesh, his own blood, his own life so that we could be made right with God. And if you know him, that is what he did for you. You can embrace that truth with confidence. It can give you hope for all eternity. You can know, again, quoting the words of F.B. Meyer, that the greatness of our sin is always less than the greatness of God's grace. Pastor F.B. Meyer said, the greatness of our sin is always less than the greatness of God's grace. 
verse 28 then makes one more contrast. Seeing this perfection compared to the Old Testament law, which relied on weak and sinful men. It says in verse 28, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. In the Old Testament, they needed new priests each generation because they were limited by human weakness. A priest was just a a regular human person. He needed to rest. He needed to sleep. He may have got tired and sick and wasn't quite able to do as many sacrifices as he used to. But more than that, they were limited by sin. Like every other person, eventually they would die, as we all do. They were infected with the fatal weakness of sin. We read in the New Testament that the wages of sin is death. What we earn by sinning against God is death. But even still, that law laid the groundwork for God's full plan to be revealed in Jesus. Remember what this passage is. I said at the beginning, it's kind of a mini-sermon on this verse, Psalm 110, verse 4. And in this passage, predicting what the Messiah, the new priest, would do, the Lord says to Jesus, you are a priest forever. That passage was written hundreds of years after they started offering these animal sacrifices, but it was still hundreds of years before Christ. Christ is able to do that because he lived a perfect, complete, mature life. He is a perfect sacrifice. There was no animal sacrifice. There is no priest. There's no other person that can bridge the gap between God and us. Only Jesus. As Paul would write, that means we should walk in love as Christ loved us, as he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He is our sacrifice. He is the one we can believe in. So if we put this all together, what does that make Jesus? It makes him our eternal perfect priest because he was our perfect sacrifice. That's something that happened in the past. And in the present, he's currently interceding for us, representing us before God. I liked how one scholar, Charles Hodge, put it, the human and divine meet, they are ever united and ever active in the person of Jesus Christ. In his divine nature, he was perfect, perfect sacrifice. And now he relates to us as as a human. He represents us to God. Both are together. You cannot tear them apart in Jesus Christ. And you will never find another lawyer who will do that for you, who will die for you and represent you before God then even after that death. So let me ask you, do you know that perfect sacrifice? Do you know this one who died for you? Are you familiar with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Does he represent you? Remember, the way he's like a lawyer is that no matter what we've done, no matter how far you've gone away, there is a way for him to represent you. If you come to him, if you turn away from sin, believe, trust in what he has done, then you can know him and he will defend you. If you don't know him or you're not sure about that, I would encourage you to please talk to me or talk to someone about that. Read more of what it says here in the Bible. Talk to someone who, oh, this person I believe is a a Christian. Maybe they can tell me more about this. Please do that. Come to know this one who will defend you before it is too late. And if we do know him, well, thinking about who he is should 
Yes, humble us. Yes, fill us with awe and wonder. It should also fill us with gratitude and joy that he faithfully represents us. To lead us to want to respond to him in grateful praise and worship. So let's do that now because he alone is worthy.